It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Welcome to the third episode of Watching Mates. I'm this week's host, Lars Emerson, and I am joined by the magnificent Michael Levito. It's a nice letter of comment. Thank you. You know who we are. This is our relatively new podcast in which we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president. As we progress from episode to episode, Truman to Eisenhower, Eisenhower to Kennedy, and so on, Mike and I each choose a film to capture the zeitgeist of that administration on the silver screen. In this episode, we're talking John F. Kennedy, America's 35th president, who hailed from Massachusetts and narrowly defeated Vice President Richard Nixon for the presidency in 1960 at the height of the Cold War. Kennedy was perceived as charming, handsome, and, well, rich. He was also the youngest person ever elected to the presidency and the first of only two Catholics elected president. Isn't that exciting for you, Mike? It is. Someday I'm going to write a piece about the erosion of Catholic political identity, and it's going to be about the difference in reception of John F. Kennedy and Joe Biden in regards to their Catholicism. Interesting. I look forward to that piece. (laughs) It may be a few years away, but... (laughs) Kennedy kind of continued the Cold War foreign policy from the previous two post-war administrations, Truman and Eisenhower, who we talked about in our last two episodes. He escalated the number of troops in South Vietnam, He attempted to overthrow communism in Cuba in the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, and then he more successfully led the United States through the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was probably the closest moment that the world ever came to thermonuclear war. Is that fair to say? To my knowledge, yeah. Kennedy was also kind of like a visionary. He talked of putting a man on the moon. He established the Peace Corps. He supported civil rights, though his administration was truncated because he was, of course, tragically assassinated in November of 1963 and succeeded by his vice president, Johnson, who we will be talking about next episode. What would you say about the legacy of John F. Kennedy, Mike? Positive? it's It's hard to be like too negative, right? Yeah, what I think is interesting is, to my knowledge, so this is not a movie we'll be talking about because it violates our rule, but there was a movie called PT-109 that was released while he was president, which was about his exploits as a PT boat sailor in World War II. And I feel like that's the last movie of its kind to be made. Like, you did not get similar movies made about the exploits of, you know, Nixon's World War II service, (laughs) or even like George H.W. Bush, who was like, you know a decorated Navy pilot. To my knowledge, there are no movies, or at least no movies anybody cares about, that were made about that. And so I think he is sort of maybe one of the last presidents that I think a lot of Americans look to and be like, yeah, he was pretty good. Whether or not they would have voted for him at the time, I think he's like one of our last figurehead presidents who means something greater than just like the politics of his era and is sort of like held up as like a figurehead more than a, a political figure to be debated whether or not that's a good thing is a completely other different different discussion but i think he's like a sort of uncriticized icon of the others obviously his death i think has a lot to do with that yeah. and i kind of subscribe to madman's theory that like his assassination was like what changed america 
in the 60s and changed everything. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, obviously it's impossible to, and it's impossible to separate his image from that. Obviously, and like, so this is the crazy thing too. QAnon, right? <laughs> They're a big part of their conspiracy theory is that John F. Kennedy Jr. is still alive and is, I don't actually, it, like everything QAnon, it's incoherent, but it's like, and they think that, they thought he was like going to eventually be inaugurated president because, and like lock up Hillary and Biden and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's weird that QAnon, which is a sort of, you know, broadly right-wing conspiracy theory that also thinks that, like, all of these powerful Democrats are pedophiles, is latches on to the scion of a liberal Democratic family that has had, like, a huge cloud of sexual misconduct floating over since the 60s. Yes. And it's like, for whatever reason, the Kennedy brand is strong. And people think of the Kennedys and they get optimistic and they get nostalgic. Which is a thing we talked a lot about on Running Mates, right? My whole, like, get a Kennedy person, someone associated with the Kennedys, like, on the ticket. Yeah, right. And, and kind of how you, uh, like you were saying there, lots of affairs and scandal, uh, let alone the Kennedy family, in JFK's own life. It is, like, a complicated legacy that I think people often gleam over just because of the assassination. And that's, like, that's probably fair. It's like, let's give the guy a break. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It seemed like he wanted to do the right thing. And to both his and mostly Johnson's credit, because it's easy to compliment the guy who had all of these ideas but didn't actually get them done. But like the one who actually put in the work, of course, was his uh, vice president who ascended to the presidency, Lyndon B. Johnson. And he used Kennedy's assassination to kind of like catapult into civil rights and, of course, did a lot of work there that was overdue, but that Kennedy kind of started yeah. or at least wanted to start. And, like, Johnson's strategy basically gets this, like, civil rights legislation passed was, like, we are doing this to honor the memory of John F. Kennedy. Like, this is what he wanted, and we are going to finish what he started. Yeah. Yeah. So there is your brief overview, in case you needed a refresher, on who John F. Kennedy was (laughs) and kind of what happened under his presidency. Now, again, the rules of our podcast— self-imposed rules of course dictate that michael and i each had to choose a film that came out within the given president's administration give or take about a year in kennedy's case it's a little more complicated of course so we're saying it's films that came out starting in 1960 and we're going to include through the year 1964 the year after his assassination so let's dive in michael why don't you kick us off what film did you choose to represent the kennedy era I went with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed by John Ford, written by James Warner Bella and Willis Goldbeck, based on a short story by Dorothy M. Johnson, and starring John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Lee Marvin, and Vera Miles. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is the story of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. <laughs> or is it? It's it's told, like, basically in media arrest, but, like, really just in ending arrests because it basically begins at the end where uh, Jimmy Stewart is a senator from some unnamed Western state uh, who comes to this town called Shinbone for the first time in a while for a funeral of a man named Tom Donovan, who is played by John Wayne. Why is that? Well, back in the day when, when Jimmy Stewart was a young Greenhorn lawyer, he came to Shinbone to set up a law practice. His stagecoach gets robbed by a guy named Liberty Valance, played by Lee Marvin. And basically this sort of animosity between Valance and Ransom Stoddard, Jimmy Stewart's character, and then Tom Donovan plays out. You know, Stewart wants to bring education to the. He essentially wants to modernize the town in a lot of ways. 
He wants to educate the populace. And is and it, 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 there's actually parallels between this and Shane, where it's like he becomes like kind of an advocate for the homesteaders who want to sort of build a town, whereas Liberty Valance is a hired gun on behalf of like the, the ranchers. And it all culminates in this election to send delegates to the state convention to lobby for statehood. And Jimmy Stort and Edmund O'Brien's character, Dutton Peabody, win the election over Valance. Valance essentially challenges Jimmy Stort to a duel. And in the duel, it appears that Jimmy Stort shoots Liberty Valance, hence the name of this film. Spoiler alert, it was not actually Jimmy Stort. It was actually John Wayne who did it from the shadows. And there's this whole romantic subplot, too. This love triangle between Jimmy Stort and John Wayne and Vera Miles. But, yeah. And the and the shooting of Liberty Valance is kind of what catapults uh, Senator, <laughs> Senator Stoddard yes, yes. To, to, like, national fame. Yes, yes, um, yeah. Sets him on his morally virtuous path. Yeah, and it's used as both like a like a credit and like an epithet, where it's they're like this man killed Liberty Valance in cold blood, but then people are like, no, it made him a hero. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Where Where do you want to start with this one? Well, should we just say what we think about this movie? <laughs> yeah. So I I had seen it before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very it's very good. I think I liked it even more this time. Yeah. This was my first time seeing it. It it started off a little shaky for me. Where I was like, man, this voice Jimmy Stort's using is very weird. Um, <laughs> it's all like old. Oh, the town. <laughs> well, he he's trying because he's he, Jimmy Stort sounds like Jimmy Stort, which is fine. But then he tries to do this like grant, like officious sort of. But then you realize like, oh, this is like an act kind of. Like this yeah. is him in like center mode, and it works better. And also, it just starts out where it's just I don't know. There's the, like the whole like I really didn't care about the love triangle. Um, no, I actually think that falls pretty flat throughout the yeah, film. Yeah. But once it actually got to once it got to the shooting, <laughs> I, I liked it. No, I like when, once actually like the whole <laughs> like terrible nerd that I am. Like once the politics started, I liked it more. And then that leads to the confrontation. Like I, Lee Marvin's awesome in this movie. He's so good. I think he's like the proto Ron Perlman. John Wayne again. Like when this movie starts, I'm just kind of like this is just John Wayne. Like kind of like he's not like phoning it in, but he's relying on his John Wayne-ness. But he actually starts to like act as the movie goes on. It's like oh never mind, this is pretty good. Although I did, I did end up enjoying this movie. It, it definitely gets deeper the more it goes on, and it becomes kind of a uh, a deconstruction of. So John Ford, like you said, is the director, and this is towards like the tail end of his career directing and producing westerns. Right, the guy's made like dozens of westerns, mm-hmm. and this is one of the the last few. Um, I think this is in his last six that he directs. And it, so it becomes kind of a, a deconstruction on the Western and on John Wayne especially, right? It's like John Wayne in other John Ford films like Stagecoach or The Searchers, he's he's like the hero. He's like the big guy who has to like confront the bad guy at the end. But in this one, he does it basically off screen, right? Because mm-hmm. John Wayne is behind the <laughs> assassination is the wrong word, but the murder of Liberty Valance the justified murder of Liberty Valance, but, you know, he's, he's not seen doing it. Oh, and, and if you notice, when, when Jimmy Stewart begins to tell a story... So, yeah, the, the framing device, I, I should mention, is that a newspaper reporter in the town asked Jimmy Stewart, like, hey, why are you here for this funeral? What's the deal? And uh, Jimmy Stewart's, like, telling a story, and he goes to a stagecoach covered in cobwebs. And I'm like, ah, oh, I rode in a stagecoach like this. Of course, stagecoach, the John Ford movie that launched John Wayne to stardom. Yeah. That's all good. Yeah. <laughs> the second 
point I was going to make is the deconstruction kind of of the Western. Westerns are always kind of about this duality between society and the individual, right? And this kind of takes that very, very literally, is they literally like hold an election. It kind of reminded me a lot of Deadwood at moments. No, yes, yes. Because there's like an election. That's like a whole part of the town is like, do we incorporate and do we become like a state and yada, yada. And they do the same thing in this movie. (laughs) And they vote in a bar and stuff. Yeah. So why did you choose this film for Kennedy? Yeah, so I I stole this idea, I'll be honest. So The Ringer had this series called States of the Union by Adam Naiman, where he he basically does what we're doing in a way, but a little bit more. Yeah, low-key the inspiration for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And he he mentions the the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and his reasoning is essentially that, like, you have Jimmy Stort is sort of Kennedy as we saw him. You know, he's a guy who uses sort of these tales of valor to catapult himself into a political career. And then John Wayne is just sort of representation of like, you know, basically, so the very, the most famous line in this movie is at the end, Jimmy Stewart tells a story to the newspaper man. The newspaper man tears up his notes and Jimmy Stewart's like, why are you not publishing this? This is true. And he goes, well, this is the West, you know, when the legend becomes truth, print the legend. When the legend becomes fact... Yes, Prince of Legend. Uh, what sure. a bad journalist, by the way. Yes, yes. And basically just, you know, th- this sort of divide from, like, you know, what we see in the press and what actually happens. And, you know, I, so obviously there, there's a big part of that, too, right? The way that, you know, Joseph Kennedy so badly wanted one of his children to be president. <laughs> and he basically tried to engineer their careers in such a way that it would make them viable candidates. Apparently his eldest son, who I believe was also named Joe was like the original choice. He dies in action in World War II. And so then he settles on Jack, John, instead. And, you know, you get that vibe, right? Where it's like, even though, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character is a very virtuous man, I mean, he literally gives the town, like, lessons in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. There's that whole scene that, like, I rolled my eyes, like, a little bit, but it's a very nice notion where it's like, there, there's one black character in this film named Pompey, and he's at, like, the school, and he's trying to have the student, Jimmy Stewart wants his students to recite the Declaration of Independence, and Pompey stands up, and he gets to the part where it's, you know, to say all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence, I should know this. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. He gets to that part, and he can't remember it, and he's like, oh, I forgot that, and Jimmy Stewart's like, it's okay, like, a lot of people forget it, too. Which, in a modern context, is, like, kind of, like, feels kind of manipulative, and, you know, it's it's extremely, it just feels extremely driving Miss Daisy, but in 1962, that was probably like a way bigger deal now that I think about it, especially from a guy like John Ford and in a movie with a guy like John Wayne, both of whom were like kind of considered conservatives. John Wayne, certainly. So I'll, I'll give him credit there. But like, yeah, just this idea of sort of like, you know, making good on that promise. I feel like a very Kennedy idea. I also get some like JFK and LBJ vibes from the relationship between Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne's characters, where it's mm. like Jimmy Stewart's the neophyte. He rolls into town with all these highfalutin ideas. You know, he's he's educated. He's he's a little bit of a fancy boy, maybe. He's not rough and tumble like John Wayne, but he's a prettier face. The women like him more. And then John Wayne is like the old sod buster. He's seen a lot of shit. He he knows how things get done in this town. He's not afraid to do some dirty work. He's more like you know of the grit and grime, which I feel like was kind of the reputation Lyndon B. Johnson held, and was kind of the the, was the dichotomy on that ticket. And in that administration. And, you know, just like the resentment, I would imagine Johnson probably resented Kennedy a little bit for ascending to the presidency before he did. So, yeah, 
it's interesting you you bring that up when you chose this movie i, I kind of like like i knew about the ringer article but i kind of like raised an eyebrow i was like that's kind of it's an odd film to choose for kennedy especially because we just kind of did a western and it's kind of hard to put kennedy in the like western genre and we we're watching i was like you know it's actually kind of weirdly a very good film about like barack obama mm-hmm. is it, it's more about like uh like a community organizer, if you will, um, who's exactly everything you like you said. He's like kind of like a neophyte who doesn't really realize uh, how real it's going to get. And John Wayne kind of reminds me of Joe Biden. It's like kind of the same. And LBJ <laughs> and Joe Biden is a parallel that's been made in the news as well. So that's funny that you mentioned that. Yes, I, I do think it connects to Kennedy well the more that I watched it. I, I think you get a couple things with Kennedy, especially you get like taking credit for other people's successes <laughs> feels like a pretty Kennedy thing to do. Yeah. All Kennedys for the record. I don't right. just mean John F. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I don't necessarily mean that like John F. Kennedy was out there and he was like, we should put the man on the moon. That's my idea. And it was like <laughs> someone else's. I more mean like from a point of privilege mm-hmm. is like the Kennedys are a very privileged family and they've used that privilege to become powerful. And you still see it today. There was a Kennedy who ran for Congress in New Jersey, I believe. Mm-hmm. Kennedy by marriage, but yes. But it's like, what do you, why do you get to be? Well, the whole Joseph Kennedy, Kennedy the third, third in Massachusetts, like running against an incumbent Senator in the primaries. Like you think you get to be like a Senator just because you're a, a Kennedy. Like, no, like yeah. sit the fuck down. Like you, you are so privileged beyond belief. <laughs> I think um, that was a controversy, too, when it came to filling Hillary Clinton's Senate seat. I think the initial choice was a Kennedy, and there was a lot of uproar because it was like, why why should this Kennedy get preferential treatment in front of much more qualified people? Something like that. So, so there's that. I also think all Westerns kind of deal, like I was saying, with the duality between like society and the individual. I think this one just does a really good job dealing with the duality of like democracy and violence and kind of the inherent battle between democracy and almost freedom, which they do kind of literally make that point in the movies. The guy's, the guy's name is Liberty, right? Yes, yes. But I also think it's a very uh, relevant topic today that kind of battle between democracy and almost anarchy. The contradictions in democracy, that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah, I would say so. And then also just, you know, this this push and pull between, like, the old and the new. Like, Lee Marvin is like, you know, this is the way things have been run around here. You know, a sense of, of arbitrary lawlessness, I guess, and, and how, like, the law is handed out. You know, there's, there's a whole, like, there's this, like, town marshal who's, like, literally, like, sleeping and getting drunk on the job. Yeah. Um, and this idea of, like, having new blood to, like, shake up the old order. Yeah. Cool. So that is the man who shot Liberty Valance. That was Mike's mm-hmm. choice for Kennedy. Shall we move on to Mike's choice? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Great. So I picked uh, the 1962 Stanley Kubrick film Lolita. Lolita stars James Mason, Shelley Winters, and... Sue Lyon, and a a few other people, including Peter Sellers, being the most notable. And it tells the story of (laughs) Humbert Humbert. So it's actually based on a book book from the 50s. You may have heard Uh, of it. Yes. By Vladimir Nabokov. Yeah. And Humbert Humbert is a, he's like a middle-aged dude. He has like a great voice. I love his voice. (laughs) It's a shame it's used in this movie. (laughs) He stays at this like boarding house, which is run by this mom played by Shelly Winters. And she has this daughter, this underage daughter 
played by Sue Lyon, uh, named Lolita. And James Mason kind of becomes, like, obsessed with Lolita. And it's not even that, like... I don't even know that, like, drama ensues. It's more just, like, I feel like the first two acts of this movie are very much just, like, tension ensues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he eventually ends up marrying Shelley Winter's character, Charlotte Hayes. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> just to be close to Lolita, who's mm-hmm. off at this, like, summer camp. It's all very... Um... Named Camp Climax. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all very interesting. Yeah. yeah. What what were your thoughts? I, neither of us had seen this movie before. No, and I had. I assume you had not read the book. No, no, no. Yes, I had not. I know people who like love this book. I can uh, see it being a great book. Yeah. <laughs> what did I think of this movie? Well, it, it definitely feels like it's funny. I was reading. Apparently, Stanley Kubrick said he would never have made this movie if he knew how much he would have to censor it. <laughs> and, like, yeah, I get that. Like, it definitely feels hamstrung by what they can show on screen. I was um, very surprised. I was like, oh, a Kubrick movie? And then I, like, I mean, I knew what it was about, but then I read more about, like, what happens in it before I chose it. Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, awesome. This is going to be great. And then, <laughs> not, like, in that way, but, like, oh, wow, this is going to be, like, an interesting movie. Yeah. And I'm watching it like, come on, do something. And they never end up doing anything. Yeah, it's it's all through like innuendo. So my, my criticism of this movie, I never really understood. It, it's it's very hard to talk about this movie. But it's if you're going to make a movie like this, you have to kind of, it should make you feel like, it should make you feel creepy in a way, right? Yeah. There should be part of you that like, you, you should you should like feel like that there is in fact something between James Mason and Sue Lyon. And I never really got that sense. No, he... Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, he's into her because she's, like, kind of hot or whatever. Okay. But then I never really understood why she wanted to be with him. And really all that, like, happens is... Well, I don't know. She 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 kind of, like, flirts with him. And then, like, when she's sent off to this camp, she's like, you know, don't forget me. And she hugs him. And then she, like, runs away. And then they spend the rest of the movie together. Yeah. And, like, the tone is weird. Like, I, it felt like it was supposed to be kind of, like, comic at points. Which, I mean, this, this, you know, there's a guy named Humbert Humbert. I assume there's supposed to be some, like, you know, attempts at humor. But it's like, it felt like the joke was that, like, it was this, like, old guy who was very hung up over this 16-year-old. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I'm sure the book is very interesting. I didn't, like, hate this movie. I thought it was, like, fine. But I definitely felt there were things missing. Peter Sellers was amazing in it, I thought. Um, he's, he's very interesting in this movie, yeah. The character he plays is very weird. He's like he's, this cre- creepy playwright. He's very he's very foppish. He is. He's he's very like decadent. And like I love how like that one scene where it's like so he's this playwright who had had an affair with Lolita's mother and knew Lolita. So basically what happens is is eventually um, Lolita's mother finds out about like she reads James Mason's diary. She finds out what's going on. She's so distressed she runs out into traffic and hit by a car and dies. <laughs> Humbert Humbert picks up Lolita from camp, tells her that her mother is sick, does not tell her that she's dead. And they, they're driving and they end up stopping at a hotel that Peter Sells' character and I guess like a dominatrix is implied are also staying at. <laughs> and he notices them and then he gives these like little like glances to like his, his girlfriend, mistress, dominatrix or whatever. And he, he kind of decides to like fuck with them or specifically with James Mason. And there's that one scene where it's, like, James Mason's on the porch of the hotel, like, having, like, a drink. And then Pierce Sellers goes out, and, like, it's not facing him at all. It's just, like, facing off the porch. And is like, talking with him. 
like pretending to be a police officer, but he's just like, yeah, I'm like a totally normal dude, just like you. Like the way he's like, I'm just like so normal, just like you're so normal and totally not illegally traveling with a 16 year old girl. <laughs> yeah. like, totally like hang out, right? <laughs> and it's just like, and it's it's like creepy, but it's also like funny, and it's like the accent he does, I feel like does not exist in like nature anymore. No, it's this very weird like I don't even know how to like do it. It, it just like you know, it's this sort of like uh, it's it's it's, 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 it's it's foppish. Like it it's is. kind of Hannibal Lecter-ish in yeah. a way. It is, like, yes, yes. And there's um, no one else who's like that at this yeah. hotel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And then there's another scene where he just is completely in disguise as like a Freudian German psychologist. And he's also very good in that. So yeah, I this movie's fine. I th- Like I said, I think it's kind of hamstrung by the times. And it just seems like it was a very, like, grand idea and a grand vision that they just, for lots and lots of reasons, could not properly execute. And it's not bad. Like, if, if, if you like Kubrick and you like this book, I wouldn't tell you not to watch it. It's just, it left me a little cold. If you read the premise of this movie, I think you will be unpleasantly surprised <laughs> by how how over the pants it is. It, it, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say this without sounding like a creep. Right, yeah. It does feel, like, kind of overly chased. You know, there we go. Thank and, you. <laughs> and, and because of that, like the stakes don't feel it doesn't feel like they're like the stakes are high enough. And it, it I, I will say like there's a lot of debate about like this book where some people think that it is kind of like not critical enough of Humbert Humbert. And I haven't read the book, but this movie is a great argument for not dating a teenager just because <laughs> a Lolita is kind of a nightmare and B, like, James Mason just lives in constant fear that someone's going to find out that he's dating a teenager. <laughs> and it's like, if the general just ickiness of that does not turn you off, then, like, these very practical reasons should also convince you not to want to do that. <laughs> yes. To be clear, we do not endorse dating teenagers. No, no. Unless you are also a teenager. Are, are you taking notes, Congressman Gates? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now I'm gonna have to edit that out if I, if they find out he's innocent in the next two weeks, Mike. <laughs> so how do we start to connect this film to Kennedy? So I, I went in fully knowledgeable that this this was based on a book from the 50s, mm-hmm. which already is like okay, so why the hell would you choose this to begin with? I do think there's some some things we can unpack here. So with the 50s. Mike and I spent a lot of time talking about the 50s, especially when we were talking about The Blob in our last episode, and kind of like the lifestyle of the 50s. I, I think Lolita is kind of, because it's obviously a film made in the 60s, it's it's kind of like at the hangover from the 50s, if you will, is, is it feels like these are all the kind of the things that like we knew were going to happen, and we knew were happening in the 50s. It's like divorce, smut class privilege it's like these are all like kind of themes it's like obviously this was like a problem in the 50s but like we never addressed it and then the 60s it all just kind of starts to like leak out and i think this is a film that depicts that pretty well it's like if you were the the film takes place in the 50s if you were like living in these in this town you would not really know what's happening Mm -hmm. you you may have your suspicions that there's like a divorce brewing or that like you know, it's weird how the the stepfather is, like, so close with his stepdaughter, but, like, you wouldn't say anything. You would just go about your day. And that seems like a very 50s mindset. This film actually reminds me a lot of a television show that Michael and I are both pretty big fans of called Twin Peaks from Never the 90s. It. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of that because that's kind of about a young girl who is murdered. And it's like kind of how did that come to be in this, like, wholesome American town? 
Twin Peaks spoilers ahead. I get very serious, like Leland and Laura vibes from this movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think Lolita is like a very like, well, Laura, I think, is a very Lolita-ish character. And, and I think like Humbert Humbert's like dissension into obsession with her. Yeah. Um, and like clinginess. It's like you can't actually go talk to anyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're with me is very Leland from Twi- from Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And kind of like Twin Peaks, it's like it, it almost it almost stops being about that he's like in love or obsessed with Lolita. It becomes like he's paranoid about her. Yeah. To the point where it becomes like he's the immature one at the end. It's like he's, you know, dating this teenager. But by the end, it's like he's the one behaving like very immature and she's kind of trying to get out of it. Yeah. That, you know, like the like, ending when it's like, so by the end, she ends up running away from him basically. Right. So So she ends up in the hospital. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And he goes to see her a couple times and she's not really giving him the time of day. And then like she's due to get out that day and he goes that evening to pick her up uh, and she's gone. Someone has already picked her up and she's gone. And then and basically you have like an epilogue after that. Yeah. She ends up getting married, is with child when he sees her again at a house in some unidentified city. And he's like, come, come, come run away with me. And she's like, no, she's like, I'm having this guy's baby. I'm sticking around. Like, what? <laughs> And that it's just like, you know, interesting role reversal like that, that part. And like a couple of other parts, like it felt like this movie in parts was trying to be a parody of romantic melodrama. But like the joke was that he was confessing his love for a teenager, even though at that point she would have been like 20 or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> she still looks the same. Yes. Yes. So that that is like a, a, a very interesting example of like the difference in maturity. So on that on that note, the other kind of tacitly Kennedy thing I have to say about this movie is you get kind of like this breakdown between older women and younger. Like basically the first half of the film is this tension between like older women and younger women. Right. Is mm-hmm. they contrast Lolita with her mother, Charlotte, pretty dramatically, right? And it's like the older woman is also in love with Humbert Humbert, who's staying in her house, and she's very direct. Like, the older woman is very direct, and she's like, I want you tonight. It's like, we're having dinner. Mm -hmm. Humbert Humbert makes her feel young, and whereas the younger woman is Lolita, it's more about the implication. Nothing is ever really explicitly said, and it makes her feel old. Yeah. And I think Kennedy is so interesting. The reason I, in this regard, and the reason I brought up his age when we were like kind of talking about him is he is a very unique president in how young he is and how kind of like a sex icon he was. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, And I, I kind of get that same thing. It's like, I see how older women or men would have been like, oh, Kennedy makes me feel so young and like vigorous. <laughs> and how like teenagers would have been like, oh my God, have you seen John F. Kennedy? Boy. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not that that's a very like deep take on this movie, but I think that's something that you could express in the 60s that would have been unsaid in the 50s. I agree. Yeah, this movie feels kind of prescient in a way in like the things it deals with. This idea of a, you know, promiscuous teenager being swayed by a decadent intellectual that like that's a very like late 60s, early 70s, like fear that people had their kids going off to, to college and stuff. And it, this, this feels, yeah, like I said, pressure in that way. And yeah, just, I, I think, yeah, this is, we were talking about like Twin Peaks stuff. Like this is the era where the thin veneer of sur- suburban respectability begins to sort of like fade away in some respects, right? To talk about another show I really like, like it's very Mad Men, right? This idea of like, you have these sort of perfect little towns with their perfect little families. And yet underneath all of that is, is a lot of tumult. 
and a lot of dissatisfaction. And yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that this takes place mostly in like New England, it's about basically the upper crust of New England society in a way and how they're like secretly all very, like I said, decadent, sort of licentious. And I don't know if you if you had this same feeling, but there's this scene at this like town dance where Humbert and Charlotte are hanging out with these two other parents. And yeah. the one guy dances with Charlotte because Humbert Humbert doesn't dance because it's like vulgar or whatever. I don't know. And then he's talking with the woman and the woman's just kind of like, yeah, you know, you, you really make Charlotte feel good. She's really good. And you're trying to imply like, hey, you should, you know, hook up with her. <laughs> Ask like, your landlady out, dude. <laughs> did you also get the sense that like they were also trying to like swing with them? Um, yeah, kind of. I, I think there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of, like, implied sexuality yeah. in this film, because yeah. Kubrick was, like, bursting at the seams. He's like, I gotta do something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I kind of got that vibe. There's the idea that, like, these elites sort of, sort of, like, setting themselves up as the moral standard to follow, and yet they're not following through on that. They're, they're indulging themselves. I also, it's interesting what you said about the sort of, like, young woman, old woman thing, is that John F. Kennedy famously kind of a playboy, as were, were most of the, the Kennedy family. And that was, he was, like, directly, like, competing, like, with his father. Like, his father was encouraged that in his sons and, like, viewed it as, like, a competition between he and his sons about basically who could sleep with the most people. Very creepy. Yeah, it, it, it is. Not saying they, like, kept score, but, like, you know, there was, like, this implied thing. And, and yeah, and I kind of viewed that, that competition between, like, yeah, like, Lolita and Charlotte for the affections of Humbert. I, I, I saw that in, in a similar way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's all I've got on Lolita. I, I think if David Lynch made a version of this movie, it could be a lot more interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a remake that was made in 1997. Famous this is more famous. Probably better. I, I've heard that this is like a must-see movie, and I've never heard that about the 1997 version. I'll put it's it that true. way. It's true, yes. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> So that is Lolita, and we talked about the man who shot Liberty Valance. Let's move to our conclusions, Mike. Mm -hmm. What's your big kind of takeaway for these films in the brief Kennedy era? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, on the service, right, it was a time of people, I think, trying to, uh, to use maybe a cliche, renew the American dream. This idea that there was a sense of renewal in what Kennedy was serving up. But I also think it was perhaps not the first time, but maybe the first time people felt comfortable saying that there was a lot of media manipulation going on when it came to this, right? And that maybe Kennedy was not as perfect as we all thought, and maybe that applies to all of our heroes. And I think that's definitely what we get from the man from Liberty Balance, and, and that idea of like a veneer, a respectable veneer is also present in Lolita. And just this idea of, you know, we're, we're not quite at the point, we're not quite at, you know, post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, complete distressive government phase in society, but we are, we are starting to ask some questions. And we are starting to make some realizations. And, and I think the, the thing with the man who shot the rebalance, right, shows that there's like a lot of there's some conflicted feelings there, right? Jimmy Swords character is a legitimately good guy. Like he probably deserves to be senator, but at the same time, he has built his career, like I said, off of a lie. And so I think you know there's something con conflicted there. And I, and I think you know this all comes to a head, and it's maybe almost prematurely comes to a head with the assassination of Kennedy. Rick Perlstein describes the assassination of Kennedy as the day the bottom fell out of America. Mm. And in Mad Men, Don Draper tells Peggy Olson that something terrible has happened and the way people viewed themselves has been, like, inalterably changed. And you're one of the people who realizes that. I definitely paraphrase that, but that's basically what he says, right? It changed the way we viewed ourselves in our country forever. This is about us starting to ask those questions before that horrible event even happened. Yes. 
I, I suspect a, between our Kennedy episode and our like Lyndon Johnson episode, I think it's going to be like the big shift in film. The first one we're going to encounter, right? Yeah. Is, is, it's, it's kind of what happened post 9-11 is I think there's a pretty big shift in like the tone of film. So, of course, both of these movies came out before Kennedy was assassinated. But but I think my two conclusions can kind of like tie in there. Neither of these movies are sentimental at all. We A lot of the films we've talked about are kind of like sentimental for like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. what America was. It's like, oh, the old, or the good old West. Because mm-hmm. we've talked, we've had a Western that we talked about with um, Shane last yeah. episode. This Western is not sentimental for the West at all. But it, but it wishes it could be, right? right? Because there is a lot of like when they, when they come back to the town, and Jeremiah Miles' character Hallie wants to go to the house that John Wayne lived in, and is like wants to bring home a a cactus flower. It really, really wants to be sentimental, but it can't because it knows too much. Yeah. I think that's well done. Yeah. And Lolita is not sentimental kind of at all. It makes you feel, I, I don't think it, like you were saying, it doesn't make you feel dirty enough, but it kind of makes you feel like dirty for what we've left behind. Yeah. In a way it mocks our tendency for romanticism, right? Yeah. The idea that someone could view their lusting after a teenager as romantic and assume the ends justified the means to accomplish that. And then that curdling into obsession and a controlling behavior, I think, is, yeah, like I said, mocking our, our desire for romanticism and sentiment. Oh, and JFK is a very romanticized president. Yes. My other conclusion kind of on both of these is how the the values of America, it's like we have a very like literal definition. It's like, oh, you know, in the founding fathers, they stood up and they believed, you know, these things. And it's like we support what they believed. I think anyone who's like remotely educated and not trying to pander to like Fox News or trying to win an election is going to be like, yeah, but like we're pretty different from that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which which we are. That's okay. That's good. In fact, the founding fathers would have encouraged that. Um, But it's like American values are like pretty malleable. Right. Mm -hmm. And they can be changed, but you, you can't acknowledge that they've changed. And I think Liberty Valance does that very well. And I think actually the Ringer article kind of talks about that. It's like the values of america which is like these macho men are the ones like doing the thing are kind of deconstructed mm-hmm. in the man who shot liberty valance where it's actually not him someone else yeah. does it just so he can be the one who like goes on to be a leader a, mm-hmm. a politician and with lolita it's is there like an american value at play there is the american value that we were wholesome because i'm not sure that that was ever really true the, the point is that these are things that can be fungible and and yet it's still america <laughs> Yeah, it's well, my kind of stupid takeaway. <laughs> I think I think it's our. I think you could argue it's two things, right? One is I think the purity of the nuclear family. <laughs> yeah. I mean that which is literally perverted to create a legally incestuous relationship. And I also think it's just our trust in institutions and the elites who inhabit them in general, right? Humbert Humbert looks down at basically everybody in this movie, and he's credential, right? He he is a professor of literature. Um, he's writing a novel. He's British, um, which maybe takes away from the argument a bit. But you know, he he he's an authority figure, right? He 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 is an elite. And and there's there's even a scene where um, when Shelley Winters is first showing him the house, she's like, "Oh, we're all from good Anglo-Dutch and Anglo-Scotch stock here, right?" Like, there's this sort of like, you know, ah, the upper crust, the Yankees, the Brahmins of New England, right? And this idea that they're aspirational, we should trust them and listen to them. And I, I just think, you know, that that's kind of what it tries to, to take down, which I mean, you know, that and that and that's the milieu that John F. Kennedy emerged from. Yeah. 
And that was really like the tone of the Democratic Party at the time. Like Adlai Stevenson, who was the nominee who faced Eisenhower twice, was like was also like he was governor of Illinois, but before that he was a college professor. And he was very controversial because he was, in fact, divorced. The <laughs> Little and, did they know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, and also it's like you contrast Humbert Humbert with Dick Schiller, who Oleta ends up marrying. And he's like, you know, he's kind of like a rube. Like, he's just kind of like a guy. He just it's implied that he does not have a lot of cash. But at the same time, like when you see him, you know, he's building his, his soon to be child a crib. And there's like a wholesomeness there that you don't find in these these elites in these institutions. Well, trust in institutions is going to get progressively worse as we proceed yeah. through this podcast. Yeah. It does I not will get, put it that way. <laughs> things do not go up. It does not get better from here. Yeah. All right. And that is our show. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. And you can always drop us a line on social media or on thepostwriter.com to let us know you know, any movie suggestions you may have for presidents coming up. In the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. You can find me on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. I'm Mike Levito. You can find me on Letterboxd at Merrimike on Twitter at MLevito. And Watching Mates is a Postwriter podcast brought to you by thepostwriter.com. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow both Mike and myself on thepostwriter.com. And we will see you next time to discuss the films of the Lyndon B. Johnson era.